So before I, 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 I get with my message, there, there is an announcement, and that is that on this coming Friday, the 21st of August, um, the team that, well, some of the team that normally take young people away in the summer um, to do our, what we call our link-ups are doing an online one on Zoom. So it's for 11 to, my eyes are good, bruv. I've got, I can see, yeah, yeah. <laughs> unlike some. <laughs> um, yeah, Friday, 21st of August, so it's this Friday between 2 p.m. and 4.45 p.m. It's for 11 to 18-year-olds. There's going to be some discussions. There's going to be some quizzes. There's some really big prizes for um, the winning team that win the quiz. So there's some incentive other than our good company. And so if you've got an 11 to 18-year-old or you are an 11 to 18-year-old, you want to join us for an afternoon of fun and topical discussion, um, then text the number on the screen 07-305-976-190 or get in touch with Marina Russell um, because she's part of the team that are putting it on. So good morning. And is it morning? Yeah, it's still good morning. And you're right, these lights are really bright. This is like... Um, it's like it needs to be, we need to rename this place um, Ecclesia Studios, I think. I think it's like a studio, really bright. But um, what a blessing that we can still um, do church, even if it's in this electronic way. Um, before I, I start, then let's pray. Father, we thank you um, for this morning and just for this moment in time for us to just to stop and pause and reflect on your words and reflect on your son and what he did for us on the cross. So may our hearts be open and our minds as cleared as they can be of the, the outside world. And let's just, just rest at your feet in this moment. And let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my God and my Redeemer. Amen. So I thought I'd start this morning um, with us going back. Um, it's been seven months, or about 30 weeks since Pastor Rob started us off on our journey through First Corinthians. And 2020, what a, what a year it's been. I know it's been said before, but it's been a really, really mad year. But did we ever think back then, on the 12th of January 2020, when Pastor Rob kicked us off, that we'd be in a place where I'm having to look into his camera and, and, and preach via Zoom on YouTube and that's not because Ecclesia suddenly decided to um, start streaming to the world, but it's because right now it is, it's, the, it's the way we've got to do things. And I'm sure I didn't think um, I'd be speaking this week to young person after young person whose grades have been messed up. And some of them were predicted straight A's and, and got downgraded to A and B and B. And even worse, some people were predicted a double A, B, and got an A, a U, and an E. And I mean, downgraded, that's... Such a weighted word to a young person who spent sort of their whole educational life getting to this next milestone, and suddenly they've been downgraded by the government's algorithm. I'm not going to hang on that too much, but 2020, and I know that you know the comparison to people losing loved ones um, due to COVID and other things over this period of time, and as a family we've lost a few. It's kind of insignificant, but to these young people, they really feel like this year has done them dirty. Via the, via the government's decisions. Um, anyway, Pastor Robbie opened us up back in January with a really helpful overview of this, this amazing letter that Paul wrote. And as a reminder, Corinth was a busy seaport city in south-central Greece. It's a lively place where people and cultures of all different types um, exist together, a bit like many places today. And Paul is on his second missional journey 
and has just been to places like Thessalonica, where he got run out of town by an angry mob of Jews who didn't appreciate him sharing the gospel and the large numbers of people who were accepting Jesus as a result of his sharing. So then he goes on to Athens and is distressed to see how many idols there were in the city. And so he does what Paul does and he heads to the synagogue to, to reason with the Jews and, and the God-fearing Greeks and he shares the gospel in front of the ruling government council there and some people become followers but others just sneered at him and, 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 and jeered him. And then his next stop is, is Corinth. And when he arrives in Corinth, he, he meets a, a Jewish man called Aquila and his wife. And, and they, um, they and the rest of the Jews have been recently moved from, or sort of run out of Rome by the Roman Emperor. So they've come to settle in Corinth. And Paul goes to see them and he starts to work with them. He starts making tents. And every Sabbath you'll find Paul in the synagogues doing what he does, reasoning with the Jews and the Greeks, trying to persuade them for the sake of the cross and, and the gospel. And Paul had really big success in Corinth. Not that it was all plain sailing, he did face some opposition. But the Lord spoke to him at, at one point and told him that no harm is going to come to him and to keep speaking and, and assuring him that he, you know, the Lord is with him because the Lord's got many people in that city. And one of those people was the leader of the synagogue, Crispus, or Crispus. And we read in, in, in Acts 18 that Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. So quite rapidly, the church in Corinth, it starts to grow, and, and Paul stays there for around 18 months. And while he's there, he writes his first and second letters to the Thessalonians, and he encourages the Gentile believers there to stand firm because they're going through some really hard persecution. And he instructs them how to lead a, a godly life. And, and clears up some confusion about the second coming of Christ. And after a run-in with some of the angry Jew, Jews, it's a pattern um, here, who brought him before the Roman governor Galilo, Galilo, only for Galilo to tell the Jews to basically go along and, and deal with it themselves because it, it's not his business, Paul stays there for a while, and then he sets sail for Ephesus and with his friends Aquila and Priscilla. And then Paul sets sail for Caesarea, and he goes up to Jerusalem, he visits the church there, he journeys to Antioch, and after a bit more traveling around, he ends up back in Ephesus. And it's while staying there that Paul receives his letter from the Corinthian church and reports from Chloe's household. And it's also from here that Paul is believed to have written his first letter to the Corinthian church. And when you need to confront a, a family member or, or a friend about something they've done or said or about a deep issue in their life, how do you, or how have you gone about it? Are you more likely to approach them in, in, a, in a loving way? Are you going to go out of your way to reach out to them and, and listen to them and pray for them? Or are you going to go in all guns blazing? Oh, I heard you did this and, you know, you was out of order for that. And I remember what you did last year as well and... You know, we know about the Corinthian people and, and <laughs> their manting behavior, but let's just highlight one or two or three examples that, that, that we've come across in this journey that we've been on going through this letter. In chapter one, we, you know, Paul goes straight in there, those divisions, those popularity tests, um, following their favorite preacher, treating Paul and Apollos and Peter and, and even Jesus as if they're like this bunch of teachers that 
They can be played off against each other. And this gets back to Paul. And, and sadly, you know, the church is still a bit like that today. I'm not saying ecclesia, but I mean the church is a bit like that still today. They've still got those same issues. And in, in chapter 5, we learn about deep sexual immorality. You know, it's so deep that not even the pagans tolerate it. I mean, you're, you're, the, the sin has got to be really deep for pagans not even to, to tolerate it. I mean, for one example is, is, is a man sleeping with his father's wife. I mean, and then boasting about it and, and being proud of their behavior, Paul pulls them, pulls them up on. And Paul tells them, you know, you should have gone into mourning. Like, that's how serious Paul sees it. Is you should be acting like somebody dead. And you should be dashed out of the fellowship. Paul takes sin really seriously, and, he, and he's trying to, trying to emphasize to them and to us just how serious we should take sin, um, especially in the church. And then we move on to chapter 8, and, and, and there's that, that business about food being sacrificed to idols, and, you know, don't eat this, don't eat that, and, and, but don't eat like this, and, and et cetera, et cetera, all of that stuff. And, and some were seeing this as an issue, and, and Paul's attitude um, was like, just, just loud them. Like, for starters, an idol is nothing. You know, there, there's only one God. And some people, they don't even have that, the knowledge that you're expecting them to have. They haven't even got it yet. And they're also used to living their lives a certain way and, and doing things a certain way. And also, food, food is mess. You know, we're, we're no closer to God if we eat certain things. We're no further away from him if we don't. You know, it's just food. But what is important, and I think the point that Paul was trying to make here was, it's how we behave. You know, the things we do or don't do shouldn't become stumbling blocks for those who are weaker or less mature in faith or for anybody at that. And if you, a spoiler alert, you know, the next section we, we, we move on to is where we are now, and it's all about the gathering and, and issues um, in how people conduct themselves and how it affects others and, and the treatment of others. And later on, there's going to be stuff about gifts and... and divisions and using your gifts and there's stuff about re the resurrection there's some people going around stupidly saying that there was no resurrection and again obviously Paul takes a bit of offense to that rightfully so with this rap sheet Paul had every reason to gun them that proper go hard on the Corinthians I mean this is Paul you know he, he he met them he shared the gospel with them he discipled them he taught them he poured his life and soul into them building up this community of believers in the thick of the ancient world equivalent to Sin City. And he invested in, in them. And this is how they want to start carrying on. This is how they are responding to the Lord and, and that free gift of salvation that came from Jesus dying on the cross. And they want to start moving worse than non-believers. But in spite of all of that, this is how Paul approaches them in his opening few words. It, it, Paul called, this is how he opens his letter. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother, Sosinus. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And you might be wondering why I've taken us way back to the beginning of this really long letter. It might feel like um, that you could probably read in about 20 minutes, but we've been taking 31 weeks, as I said just a minute ago. Um, 
And you might be thinking, you know, just as we're halfway there, here comes Boise and he's trying to take us all the way back to the beginning. Is he okay? But there's a, there's a reason why I'm doing it because this is a good reminder of how we should handle and approach people that let us down. People that might have rubbed us up the wrong way or, or done us real bad or people that we see they aren't living righteously despite knowing better. And maybe even people that we've invested time in and, and spiritual energy into. And let's not forget none of us are perfect. None of us have, have made it spiritually. And it's also a kind of sobering thought, really, you know, knowing that the early church faced divisions and problems and big, massive ones in the very early days. You know, we can often look back at the first generation of, of Christians and, and think they had it all together and they had this pure, sweet, like honey church life and then centuries later, things start going downhill. It didn't go like that. And this letter that we've been journeying through is Paul's words to a failing group of his people. Yet he doesn't cuss them out, he doesn't shout at them, he doesn't demand an explanation for their worse than heathen behavior, he doesn't drag them because of their sins. No. He goes on to say, I give thanks to my God always for you. Bearing in mind at this point, Paul knows everything that has been going on. And maybe even more that wasn't put in the letter, who knows. But he says he gives thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. So that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as, the, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Paul has written to the Corinthian church family to address the sin in their lives, and he's been told exactly what's going on. But before Paul deals with their behavior and what they've been doing, he reminds them of just who they are. And he thanks God for them. He reminds them of their God-given strength and ability. He points out that they lack nothing in terms of spiritual gifts as they wait for Jesus' return. And most importantly, he reminds them and us of God's faithfulness to them and that God has called them into fellowship with his Son. And that's kind of where I wanted to, to start this morning, just reminding us all of who we are in Christ and that despite whatever sin or shame or past or pain we have or don't have, we are his children. His redeemed, saved children. And despite our mess-ups and our hang-ups and our all other kind of ups, we are his and, and he loves us. Amen? Amen. So let's get to our passage for this morning before I take the, the term introduction way too far. Last week, Brother Bertram, and, and, and I can't lie, when I saw the preaching rota for the summer and I saw the passage for last week and I saw my name near it I had to zoom in on my phone and then when I saw that I was after it oh, my heart heart skipped a beat because that, that's, a, that's a, a tough passage to tackle and, and you did well brother and the role of women in the church but I've been given the task of the Lord's Supper and it's a long passage um, I'm going to read it kind of fast and, and if you can keep your, your phones your iPads it's going to be a bit tricky if you're watching this on your phone, your, your, your paper Bible. Keep it open to this passage because we're going to kind of go through it chunk by chunk. 
um, and see, see what it's, it's, it was saying to them and what it's saying to us. So it's 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 34. I'm reading from the ESV. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he gave, had given thanks, he broke it, and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for, the, for judgment. About the other things, I'll give you directions when I come. And I'm so used to that my Anglican church saying this is the word of the Lord and people saying thanks be to God. Amen, amen, because it is the word of the Lord. So we're going to look at this passage um, in three ways. Um, the problem, the gospel, and living it out. That's how I've kind of broken it down. And so the problem, Paul is now turning his attention towards what he's been hearing about the, how the Corinthians are carrying on when they meet together. And, and, and he's not happy. In verse 17, um, Paul's like, about these things here, don't be looking any praise from me. When you not come into church to break bread and to praise God, you're doing more harm than good. And in a way, Paul's greatest missionary success has turned into his biggest challenge. He's brought together this worshipping community that was basically this mesh of, of differences. Let's, let's look at the ingredients. There were people from pagan backgrounds who came to Christ. You had half-pagan Jews, which were basically pagans who converted to Judaism, who then converted to Christ. And then you had Jews that converted to Christ. In the midst of that, you probably still had some pagans, and you probably still had um, some Jews, and who knows who else. And you've got male and female. You've got those that are rich. You've got those that are poor. You've got those that are really poor. And if that wasn't enough, you had all of these complex relationships and sexual issues going on. You had single people, you had engaged or, or betrothed people, 
Um, then you had the married ones, the happily married, the unhappily married. You had those married to other believers, those married to other believers wanting a divorce. You had those married to pagans uh, who were believers and those married to pagans who were believers that wanted a divorce. And, and, that, and that's before we even get onto the, you know, ancestral stuff. They were always going to have issues. And, and you could argue that they were always destined to make things worse rather than better, as, as Paul has charged him with. And really, I mean, is the church so different today, I guess we could ask. And in verses 18 and 19, Paul's like, I, I, I hear what's been going on. And I love how Paul is straight talking. He doesn't mince his words. He doesn't wishy-washy anything. You know, with his chest, he tells them, somebody has told me what you lot have been up to. And why not? You know, they weren't gossiping or snitching or trying to make trouble. They were just some believers looking on and concerned enough that they had to go to Paul directly and tell him their concerns. And Paul's already in chapter 1 told the Corinthians just where his intel had come from. It's Chloe's household. But he never named who in Chloe's, Chloe's household. So Paul's telling them this so that, you know, they take heed. It's not hearsay or it's not assumption. Paul's coming to them with eyewitness accounts. But for some reason, Paul says he partly believes it. Now, this could be his way of saying there has to be some truth in what I'm hearing, but also Paul's not blindly believing every little thing that he's hearing or, or, or maybe any tick for tat that he hears in, in amongst what he's hearing. But at the same time, his, his sources are trustworthy. They're honest people who have serious concerns about the church in, in Corinth. And what he's heard is that there are divisions amongst the people of the church. And there's two kind of theories that, that people um, go along with this passage and about what Paul meant by it in verse 19. And one is that Paul is saying that there must be factions or divisions among you so that those who are genuine, those who are saved or, or approved, as the NIV says, stand out from the rest. And those who really belong to God are, sort of re are really made evident. And the second theory is that he's kind of being sarcastic as if he's saying, yeah, I'm sure there are different parties going on in your church. How else are you going to make the really important people stick out? But what is clear, no matter what theory you go along with, the people's divisions originate from people's sins. But Paul is seeing a good purpose for those sins because at least the genuine people are sticking out. The true believers, the serious believers are sticking out. And he goes on to explain what those divisions are in verses 20 and 21. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. There's definitely a social divide going on here. And back in the early days of the church, they combined what was referred to as the love feast, which was like the early church gathering to, to, to have a shared meal where many would bring a dish and contribution um, to socialize and also have the Lord's Supper. It's like the equivalent to what we'd call like a bring and share meal or um, jollof and jerk, as we'd call it here at Ecclesia, um, with nobody getting drunk, thank the Lord, yet. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but Paul tells them that this isn't the Lord's Supper you guys are eating because there was some selfish, mad behavior going on. You know, you, you've got some, some of you taking your food and having your own private thing over there in the corner while some people are sitting over here and they, they haven't got a meal. While some people over there are acting stupid and getting drunk. So you've got greed, selfishness, drunkenness at church. 
What in the name of heathenness? What we've got is a clear picture of the rich filling their bellies and getting drunk and the poor going hungry. But it's worth remembering that the Corinthians' culture had pagans having these wild, unruly banquets as if it's normal. So it wouldn't seem strange to Corinthian Christians to even be getting drunk in church over a meal because that's the world around them. That's the world they've come from. And they've probably not long come from that world as well and they've, they've even, if they've even completely left it. Maybe they've got one foot in and one foot out. And in those days, it was expected that the upper class would you know, get better food and, and more food when they're being served and the lower class, the poor, would get less or nothing. And this attitude, this cultural custom was being carried over into church life. Apologise for the interruption from the mobile phone. We are live. The Christians weren't really sharing with one another. At a love feast, it was normal for the rich to bring more food and the poor to bring less or none. But here, the food isn't being shared fairly. And class was even more important in the ancient world than it is today. And that's what vexed Paul the most. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What do you want me to say to you? Commend you for this? No. So Paul's getting sort of straight and simple. You know, if you want to carry on like this, go, go to your yard. Or do you hate God's church that much that you're going to carry on like this in here and humiliate people? To Paul, in God's house, at God's table, they're respecting class over kingdom. And he's vexed. What do you want me to say to you? Should I praise and applaud you? You must be mad. So there's the problem. There's this divide caused by a worldly class system. The rich against the poor, greed and drunkenness in God's house at his table. And then Paul brings in the gospel. For I received from the Lord, verse 23, what I also delivered to you. And before St. Paul starts to remind them of just what it is and, and, and who it is, they're supposed to be coming together for, he reminds them that what he taught them before and he's about to share with them again, he received from the Lord. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he get, had given thanks, he broke it and said to them, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Paul is reminding them of that night which was probably only 20 years before this letter was written when Jesus was portrayed by his friend and disciple Judas. And he gave thanks for the bread, and he broke it. Paul was putting the emphasis on Jesus and, and what he said back then at the Last Supper and what he said about his own death. And remember, the Last Supper was a Passover meal. Jesus was a devout Jew. It was a Jewish tradition that celebrated the deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt. The breaking of bread and drinking wine were important parts of that ritual. And at the Passover meal, they would have had unleavened bread and made without yeast, remembering the Israelites and, and, and you know, them not having time to let the bread rise when they were fleeing the Pharaoh and, and God's instructions back in Exodus. And the wine represents God's redemption of the Israelites. And by us taking the bread, Jesus calls us to remember that his body will be, and for us, in hindsight, was broken for us. 
verse 25, and in the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The Passover meal, it featured several cups of wine, and each one had a different meaning. And Jesus, I think, took the third cup, which represented God's redemption, but he gave it a new meaning. The, the wine represents Jesus' blood, and we're saved through the shedding of Jesus' blood. And each time the Corinthians did, and each time we drink from the cup, at the Lord's Supper, we're to remember that the shedding of Jesus' blood is how the new covenant was established. The new covenant is God's pledge to forgive his people's sins, put his laws within us, write them on, his, on our hearts to be our God and to make us his people. Forgive his people's sins, put his laws within us, write them on our hearts to be our God and to make us his people. See Jeremiah 31 for more info and to go a bit deeper with that. Verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Paul is starting to wrap up his reminder to the Corinthians what the purpose of the Lord's Supper is. It's not meant to be a social gathering and it's not supposed to cause division. The most important event in history is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the second most important event in history will be when he returns. In between these two events, we should be declaring Jesus and his death to the world. And whenever we share the bread and wine together, partaking in the Lord's Supper, we're declaring Jesus' death to the world and remembering it with one another. So living it out from verse 27, Paul begins to tell the Corinthians how to live out what he's shared with them, how it practically looks in their lives. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner who will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner. In simple terms, have you checked your heart before you take part in the Lord's Supper? Are you eating the meal to remember Jesus' sacrifice and to commune with your fellow brothers and sisters? Is the congregation divided amongst themselves or are they united? Are we actually having communion or are we just selfishly satisfying ourselves? You'll notice that I've been going back and forth between speaking about the Corinthians back then and who Paul was writing to us here today. And that's because in some respect there's no difference. You know, we need to be checking our hearts before we come to the Lord's table just as much as they needed to back, back then. So most churches today have sort of two pre-qualifiers to, to come into the Lord's table. And one is, are you a believer? Are you a follower of Jesus? And the Lord's Supper, the remembrance of Jesus' death, the shedding of his blood for our sins, is too precious, it's too holy for it to be done as some religious, meaningless ritual. And the second one, are you up to date with God? Like, have you got any unconfessed stuff or any ill feeling towards a fellow brother or sister that isn't resolved? And it doesn't mean perfection, by the way. We don't need to go to the Lord's table perfect. We'll never be that. 
until he comes back and takes us home and perfects us. But if we're not walking with God, like actually walking with him in our daily, not just our Sunday lives, you know, if we're not having an active relationship with God, if we're not allowing him into those horrible and painful and sinful areas in our hearts and lives, if we're not allowing him to be God and judge and healer and sanctifier, and that sounds like a lot of jargon that I've been trained not to use, but, you know, it's literally letting God into our lives and our hearts and letting God be and do God. And if we're not letting him in and we're not walking with him, but we're coming to the supper table with our, our hands out, we and the Corinthians back then, we're running a mockery of the Lord's Supper and what it represents. Real talk. But if we are, then communion, you know, the Lord's Supper is a sobering sort of celebration of Jesus and his bride. If we are genuinely coming with a heart of repentance to commune with the living God, what a celebration of Jesus and his bride, the church. Paul goes on in verse 29, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body and drinks judgment on himself, verse 30, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if, you, if, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. Funny little conundrum there. The Corinthians didn't recognize the importance, you see, of their meals together. And Paul was warning them that they were acting in an unholy way towards an holy occasion. This resulted in God's judgment coming on them. And Paul says that's why many of them were weak and ill, and some have even died. And we've seen back in Acts 5 that there is sin that leads to death. So it seems a believer can sin to the point that the Lord will take someone home early if he sees fit. But home they will go because they're saved. And that's not to say this is the case for every untimely or premature death of a believer, but our lives are in his hands. And when he's ready, he's going to take us home. Verse 32, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Now Paul is injecting a bit of blessed assurance here. When, When we're judged by God, He's disciplining us so that when Jesus comes back, we're not going to be condemned to the hellfire and brimstone like the rest of the world. You know, Paul knew that even those that had been taken home early by the Lord because of their sinfulish behavior, they were being disciplined but not condemned. You know, their salvation was intact. So he goes on to say in verse 33, So then, my brothers and sisters, I would add in, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. This doesn't really need expanding that much. Have manners. Wait for one another. See that everyone gets their share. Don't pig out. You're not here, you know, for Sunday dinner. And because of this simple, selfish behavior, the Corinthians were bringing God's judgment on themselves. And Paul's basically telling them, just allow it. Like, it's not worth it. About other things, he finishes by saying, I'll give you directions when I come. And clearly, Paul, he hasn't dealt with the whole issue in this letter. And there's, he's got more to say to them. And I, I would, I'd love to know what that more was that he thought he'd, he'd deal with in person. 
So how do I land this, 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 this plane and give us some, some takeaways? Um, I guess the Lord's Supper is, a, is about two things. And one of them is love. That ultimate love, that, that Father's love. The Father who sent his only son to the cross once for all his children so that we may be saved. Paul doesn't come at the Corinthians from this doctrinal or, or theological or, or you know, theoretical angle. He deals with their behavior and the selfishness of it. And the way Paul questions and rebukes them in verse 22, and he's really strong, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate them that have nothing? I'm not sure if these wealthy, upper-class Corinthians would probably have agreed with Paul that they despise the church. If you think about it, in their minds and perhaps in their hearts, they don't. They love church. You know, coming together, eating as much as they want, showing off with their big meals, getting drunk, looking down their noses at the poor people. Why wouldn't they love coming to church? Despise it? No, we love it. But just coming to church and doing your thing doesn't mean you don't have, at the same time, some despise for the church. I mean, how many times have, has, has any of us come to church and had a really big gripe with someone or something? You love coming to church, you, you know, the routine, the start of the week, the inclusiveness, the business of the church, doing your thing in church, whatever your role is, etc., etc. But that pastor, that youth worker, that Sunday school worker, that council member, KMT, and... You know, the way we do this, or, 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 you know, I've told, I don't do it that way. I've told them five times and they're not listening to me. But the two can't work together. You can't despise something you love, and you can't love something that you despise. The Corinthians are treating the church like it's some wild party, like it's some, or as if it's some buffet in Walthamstow on a Sunday afternoon. You know, eat as much as you want, fill your bellies, or like it's some house party where, where anything goes. There's no rules, there's no limits. But the church is Christ's bride. It's his body. Yet they're carrying on like gathering as a church was, was nothing. Do we see the church as Jesus' body? Do we respect and love and nurture and repair it and maintain it like you would our own bodies or our car? If we love our car more than our bodies, some people do. Or our house, which some people love their houses more than love their... Some, you've got that body... So everybody's got that thing that they maintain and love and nurture. The Lord's Supper isn't a religious act. It's, an, it's, it's a holy communion in the general sense where Christ is present at the table. It's a call to love, to love Christ, to love his church. We can't be shaming people, cussing people, hating people, spiting people, and then coming to the Lord's table and taking the, the, the bread and the cup. Jesus died for his church and he died for the poor because he loves the church and he loves the poor. Brothers and sisters, if we're among the genuine and the, the, the authentic that Paul spoke about in, in verses nine, verse 19, then we've got to love the church, warts and all, faults and all, people and all. And we need to love and welcome the poor to the table. And it's about self-examination, if I can get my words out, self-examination. And I've kind of labored on maybe about that enough. But what I will add in is that we need to have the heart and attitude of David when he, when he prayed and wrote Psalm 19. 
The Lord is the Lord. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are much more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, that, that, that honey that comes from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. The leader of a Bible school in, in Michigan who, who teaches on 1 Corinthians once said that Paul points these believers back to God's grace and peace before any struggles are discussed. We've, we've seen that. We've, we've spoke about that this morning. He, he goes on to say, while their lives are full of blame, he promises they will be blameless before God. Why? Because God is faithful. Paul isn't banking on their faithfulness or repentance. He's banking on God's character. How do we see this here in the UK? Not, not in Corinth, out in Greece, but here in the UK, here in London, maybe even here at Ecclesia. What, what do we need to leave at home when we come to church? Bit of an awkward dynamic because you're probably all at home at the moment. But when, when you're coming to Zoom, what do you need to leave away from Zoom? You get the analogy, orcs. What, what, what do we need to pray, prayerfully flush out of ourselves individually and maybe collectively what would Paul write to Ecclesia in 2020? What would Paul write to Ecclesia in 2020? What would he be concerned about? What would he be not praising us about? Our God is a gracious God. Just like the church in Corinth, he sees the failures, the mistakes, and the immaturities in our lives, and no, he's not okay with them. But instead of angrily condemning us, he deals with us as a loving father deals with his children. He, his aim is to transform us into the image of his son. And he's going to stop at nothing until he completes that. Because God is a faithful God. He seeks to change us because we are already in Christ. He knows who we are, secure, justified, we're in him even when at times you know, we forget our heads and, and our, our identity in him and we choose to sin, he's still got us. Shall we pray? Thank you, Jesus, and thank you for the Last Supper and that meal you had with your disciples and for instituting this perpetual reminder for us of the sacrifice you made for each of us, your body broken, your blood shed on the cross. So that if all we do is call on the name of Jesus, if we believe that God raised us from the dead, God raised you from the dead, if we turn away from our sinful selves and towards you, we are saved. Father, help us to examine our hearts. Lord, help us to keep a constant check on our communion with you and our relationships with others. Remind us when we need reminding that you are a loving, faithful God who can come 
you know, with the, the, to the person with the smallest or deepest or wickedest of sins, and, and we're forgiven. Give us love for the poor, especially those who are spiritually poor, those who don't know you. Give us love and, and the courage and the right words to say to those who are lost without your love in this dark, dark world. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.